On this week's 51%, the Supreme Court recently overturned Roe v. Wade, ending nearly 50 years of constitutional protections for abortion rights in the U.S. But how did we get here? We speak with author and professor Jennifer Holland about the history of abortion in the U.S. and how abortion became a political issue. People know that abortion became legal across the country with Roe v. Wade, but they sort of assume it was always illegal before that. And that was not the case. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh leader. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. As you've no doubt heard by now, the Supreme Court recently ruled on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, effectively overturning Roe v. Wade and ending nearly 50 years of constitutional protections for abortion in the U.S. The right to an abortion now exists on a state-by-state basis. In the weeks that have followed, many states have pulled the trigger on restrictions or full-out bans of the procedure, while others have ramped up protections and prepared for an influx of -of out-of-state abortion patients. Last week, we brought you some reactions from both sides of the aisle as the ruling came down. For many, the decision didn't come as a surprise, given the decades of opposition that Roe v. Wade, abortion providers, and the issue as a whole has faced. But how exactly did we get here? Perhaps by looking at the history of abortion in the U.S., we can better understand where we are now and maybe even get an idea of where we're headed. Our guest today is an associate professor of U.S. history at the University of Oklahoma. Jennifer Holland has long focused on American history as it relates to gender, sexuality, and race, particularly in the North American West. In her 2020 book, Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement, Holland focuses on the growth and evolution of anti-abortion activism in states such as Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. She says it's important to understand that abortion wasn't always such a hot-button partisan issue in the U.S. In fact, during our country's early years, it wasn't fully illegal. I was from the American West and I was trained as a historian of the American West. And then I was just like so many people who grew up in the late 20th century, sort of fascinated with conservatism because it seemed like it was so a part of our politics. And I thought that people hadn't really studied social conservatives that much in Western spaces. And I also was really interested in what these movements look like in multiracial spaces. So not sort of perhaps in the Midwest that was largely white and not the South that was black and white largely, but really spaces that had a whole host of different people. And I really wanted to think about roles of race in this movement and who took part in it and what they talked about. And so those states really helped me analyze that part of, of the movement. Where would you say, when looking at this, where would you start as terms of like the history of abortion in the United States? Well, I think that any history of abortion needs to start pretty early because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around abortion in America. I think that people know that abortion became legal across the country with Roe versus Wade, but they sort of assume it was always illegal before that. And that was not the case. Uh, the English colonies and then the early United States actually had legal abortion that they had the American legal system built on English common law and English common law said that abortions were legal up until something called quickening. Um, It was the time when a woman could feel a fetus move 
And so before that it was legal. And after that it was illegal. And historians sort of debate about why it was illegal then. I mean, one thing is that there really were conversations about when life began and that some people thought that fetal movement suggested some kind of beginning of life, but also post-quickening abortions or later abortions were incredibly dangerous in this period. So people also suggest that maybe it was illegal because these were much more dangerous procedures because early in pregnancy, you could take some sort of herb, right? But later you would need instruments and any kind of surgery in that era that needed instruments was, was very dangerous. I was going to ask sort of like what those early abortions looked like and who was performing them. Well, um, there was a lot of folk knowledge about how to go about it. So there people sort of knew what kind of herbs to take, but also, I mean, midwives would have been sort of your healthcare provider for all kinds of women's issues, you know, and the full range of reproductive issues, certainly. Um, but, but a lot of people, you know, would have known what to take simply by sort of talking to each other. And these weren't things that people talked about as much in public, but it was this really important conversation that people would have in private. And so that sort of shifts in the mid to late 19th century. That's the moment when abortion becomes illegal in the United States, that this is a moment in time when, especially physicians, uh, these sort of what they called regular physicians, people who had gone to you know, emerging medical schools, were competing with a whole host of healers, and they were trying to prove that they were, they knew the most about the body. Um, and they were the ones that the state they thought should say were legitimate as opposed to the others. And so a handful of these doctors really push the early American Medical Association and state legislatures to make abortion illegal. And there's a whole host of reasons why those legislators would have been more open to that conversation. But so basically by 1900, every state in the country has a law banning abortion at every stage of pregnancy. And the only exception would be the life the mother was at stake. So really abortion's only illegal, fully illegal in the United States, sort of between 1900 and like the late sixties. And the only legal abortions of course were the ones if your life was at stake and only doctors could say whether that was the case. They remained these really important gatekeepers even if gatekeeping wasn't always, was sort of actually eventually a pretty hard position to be in because doctors sometimes were very certain that they were providing legal abortions, but they always worried, like what if someone came back and said, oh, that, that woman's life wasn't at stake. You provided an illegal abortion, right? And so there were people who knew they were operating outside the bounds of law, but then all these others, you know, they worried. So we've got the motivation, I guess, then of physicians wanting to be seen as like the professionals, but what reasoning were they giving for why abortion should be illegal at the time? Like what was their medical reasoning for it? Yeah, well, a few reasons. I mean, I think one of them, the medical one is they said, we looked into the body. They said, we, you know, we do autopsies and things like that. And we see the fetus and we can see that there's no difference really between a fetus before quickening and after. And so they said, you know, we know more about a body than midwives, than women, than anyone else. And it's because we've looked inside and so we can see the truth. And so there's really claims about knowledge, right, in there. But of course they and a whole host of others are also making claims that there's problems with declining birth rates for white Protestant women 
and that in fact maybe immigrants and women of color are over reproducing um, that's sort of going around in the air in the late 19th century and that by stopping abortion you can sort of prop up those declining birth rates for white protestants and really i mean to be honest fertility in the united states have been declining since the revolution it was sort of this really amazing thing they, they sort of decline in um, fertility from the late 18th century, um, but they get really worried about it in the late 19th and say, oh, white people are going to be replaced. Um, when do we start seeing abortion being talked about more in terms of political or religious beliefs? Um, well, religious groups in general, for the most part, would have been opposed to, largely opposed to abortion and birth control. In the early 20th century, it starts to shift. So you start to have some religious groups in the, in the 1920s start to say birth control is moral, right? And, and birth control and abortion are super linked together. So you start having religious disputes beginning in the 1920s about the role of sort of controlling reproduction, especially in, in marital sex. You know, you have some religious groups who say sex and marriage has value beyond reproduction. And if we believe that, then birth control has a role. So you have these religious people who are very much disagreeing with one another, but the Catholic church really would remain especially uh, stalwart against birth control and of course, abortion. The sixties is when you have religious groups really becoming also disagreeing openly around abortion. You have a lot of other religious groups who are saying, actually, we think there's real need for legal abortion and you have clergy overtly breaking the law to help women access abortion. So there's real disputes within religious communities. And Catholics often felt alone. They weren't alone, but they often felt alone in sort of standing firmly against both birth control and abortion. But in terms of politics, this wouldn't really matter in terms of a partisan politics until the late 60s and 70s, um, because that's when you have a movement a rise to change abortion laws. Um, that was a bipartisan though movement. It was one led by professionals at first that feminists really join and remake, but it was professionals, it was bipartisan. It wasn't like Democrats were for and Republicans were against at all. In fact, if you had to speak generally, you'd say Democrats had a tendency to oppose opening up abortion because at that time, white Catholics often voted Democrat. But, and this is a moment that the anti-abortion movement grows up too, right? In response to their states trying to offer more avenues for legal abortion. But it wouldn't become partisan until the mid to late seventies because the anti-abortion movement really realizes they need a party for their politics. Some keep hopeful that the democratic party is gonna be it, but by 1976, it's pretty clear that they won't. And so, and this is also the year where Republicans for the first time put a anti-abortion plank on the platform. It's tentative, it's not nearly as sort of strident as it would become, but it's this really important moment where um, this issue becomes partisan, where one party is more supportive and one is opposed. Um, if we could back up just a little bit, I guess, to the decision of Roe v. Wade, would you be able to speak on that a little bit of sort of like what the basics of that case were and how that affected both movements going forward? Yeah, so 1967 is the first year where a state starts to open up their abortion law, right? States start to follow. And a lot of times they would be sort of 
semi like relatively small opening. So you add rape, incest, and if the mental health of the woman was at stake. But pretty quickly, you have this movement, especially as it's joined by feminists, saying that this is insufficient. You've just added new gatekeepers, either the law or psychiatrists, right, who have to certify that you fit into one of those categories. And so pretty quickly, the reform movement uh, moves to repeal. They repeal abortion laws. And that really, there's an argument that this decision should be in the hands of the woman herself, right? And that wasn't initially the heart of the arguments always, um, but it would be by this point in time. And so you have this world in which in some ways that we're getting back to, right? Where like people would move across state borders to states, especially the states like New York who had repealed their abortion law in order to get legal abortions or across international borders. So there's all sorts of legal challenges to a whole host of abortion laws. And you have all this whole infrastructure, legal and movement infrastructure interested in challenging these abortion laws. And Roe versus Wade would come out of Texas. You know, it was a case of a, a woman who had a number of children. She had tried to seek abortions before, and eventually it's, you know, it's taken up by these lawyers in Texas and brought up to the Supreme Court. Norma Mercabi is her name. And the Supreme Court is really receptive. Um, at that point in time, you have a whole host of doctors who are advocating for legal abortion because they had, so many had been put in these terrible positions and they had seen women dying. You know, major um, cities had whole wards in hospitals dedicated to physical problems as a result of illegal abortion. There's a whole host of doctors who really feel compelled by this. So you have the court who's listening to them in particular. And also very recently, they had recognized a right to privacy in the Constitution. That first was with Griswold v. Connecticut in the late 60s around birth control. And so the court rules in Roe versus Wade. And, and really, the ruling changes a lot. Like it changes laws across the country um, because it really imposes a trimester framework that in the first trimester, a woman had an absolute right to an abortion. Um, that the second trimester, there could be some, the state could regulate in some ways. And in the third trimester, the state could ban, but it was not required to ban abortion. Um, and they said that this, third trimester, the, the dividing line was viability, right? Viability was when a fetus had a over 50% chance of living outside the womb. And that's when the court said the state has the ability to regulate on that. So this was a huge, I mean, it, it really changed so much. I mean, in the trimester framework, you can hear that's like very much rooted in a doctor's vision, right? It wasn't, it, they listened to feminists, but it wasn't full repeal, right? It still very much had some limits, right? But it did change so much and it, and it really made the anti-abortion movement especially go national. You know, this thing that had been in individual states now affected every state. And so you have this anti-abortion movement sort of, I, I, they, it wasn't like enormous overnight, you know, Roe versus Wade did not cause like a tsunami of activism, but it did sort of spread out the movement across the country. How has the uh, anti-abortion movement changed since then? Because I think it's safe to say that, you know, this recent decision is the result of decades of efforts. What were those kind of steps like? Well, the movement, as I said, wasn't enormous when it began. It was um, a movement of largely Catholics. They were all white or almost all white. 
And, but of course not all Catholics felt this way. So this was a particular subset of Catholics and they had a handful of other religious people, but it really was majority Catholic. And they are generating really important arguments early on that they would hold on to for 50 years. And this was partly that they would sort of sideline religious arguments, at least to the public, and because they were worried about anti-Catholicism. And also Americans in the late 60s um, were much more skeptical about religious movements trying to impose their vision on the majority. And so the movement very quickly sort of doesn't argue on the basis of religion. They, they argue on the basis of biology. So immediately the movement is trying to get people to see the fetus or all that fetal imagery is very early on. It proliferates over time, but early on, they're trying to get you to see the fetal body and they talk in terms of fingers and toes and chromosomes and all that stuff. And they also talk in terms of civil rights. They compare Roe versus Wade to the Dred Scott decision, uh, which said that Black people weren't full citizens. But the movement says both of these decisions dehumanize. The anti-abortion movement says they are the extension of Martin Luther King's civil rights movement. So they're claiming to be a rights-based movement. And they also compare legal abortion to the Holocaust. And so these arguments, would they'd really be hashing things out in the early 70s, and they would keep hold of them. But as you say, they it would be, they'd change in, in some really important ways, right? One is that they would get this party, they would get the Republican Party, and they would become a really reliable voting base for the Republican Party. They were never a majority of Americans, but they were this incredibly powerful minority because Republicans could just sort of say the right things about abortion. And that would be this issue that became a life or death issue for a certain number of voters that would bring them to polls no matter what. But also because Roe versus Wade stood, those legislators couldn't actually do much. And so it was relatively cheap for people to get these voters, right? And by the late 90s, they're really pushing the Republican party to do more than um, simply say the right things, that they're really pushing them to actually do things. So they get the power of the party and in the 21st century, you really see them use the power of that party um, to pass a whole host of state laws and also to push presidents to nominate Supreme Court justices. So that's a big change. And also in the late seventies, they really get a, a really valuable member of this anti-abortion coalition is that evangelicals join in earnest, white evangelicals join in earnest. They join up and become, as I would say, equal partners in the movement. And Mormons would always be sort of a part of the coalition, but, but much lesser um, in terms of their participation. And the other, I think, really big thing they do is in the 80s, they, they sort of figure out the place of, of the woman was a real problem for the movement. That if you say abortion's murder over and over again, akin to murdering a, a child, then the question is, who's the murderer? And of course, the movement always said abortion providers, but it doesn't quite make sense that the abortion provider would be the only culprit, right? That it only makes sense that the abortion seeker would. But they knew that that wasn't, that wasn't gonna be popular. And so they basically try not to talk about the abortion seeker mostly, but in the eighties, they're like, oh, we figured this out. We'll talk about the woman as the second victim of abortion, that in fact, women are biologically, are hurt physically, and also mentally, they come up with this idea that abortion causes trauma. It's never supported by uh, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association. They keep saying, no, no, abortion does not cause, is not a common trigger for trauma, but the movement doesn't care. They, they keep selling this. In fact, 
making abortion illegal will help women, that they are a women's rights movement. And that would really get a lot of traction in the 80s, 90s, and the 21st century. In the uh, states that you focused on, what were some of those like local efforts or state laws that you saw being offered up to try to limit abortion? Well, the states I looked at, they, you know, these movements are pretty similar in a lot of ways across all states. They tried to do the same things that other states did. You know, they mm-hmm. they tried sometimes unsuccessfully, right? Early on, they say, oh, well, we tried to pass a law saying that um, a woman has to get the consent of the father. When the court says, no, no, that's not going to happen. But then others, they, you know, they do get it. And the same things that get traction everywhere, right? Eventually, especially after Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, things like waiting periods and consent for minors. Arizona more recently passed laws that were being tried nationally and at federal level to say banning abortion where the abortion seeker is discriminating based on gender or race. Uh, They called this the Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass Act. So really trying to grasp hold of that civil rights and women's rights heritage. But basically what it amounts to, of course, is, is adding an extra hoop to get an abortion, but also basically that the abortion seeker has to prove that they aren't discriminating against their own fetus, right? But these movements, I mean, what I what I found was um, in these very multiracial spaces, they were as white as everywhere else, that they didn't really speak about ethnic Mexican history or, or Native American history. They really stayed focused on co-opting Black history, on issues of slavery and, and the Black civil rights movement. And I also found that even though you had a lot of, especially religious people of color who opposed abortion personally, but they just didn't join this movement and they didn't seem to vote on this issue. And I think that that was really because this movement mostly did not reach out to communities of color and also because they really were co-opting racial justice language, but they didn't actually do anything else about race. All of their arguments were basically abortion is like racism. And basically if you make abortion illegal, you'll basically solve racism too. And that's sort of, you know, insufficient, I think for a lot of people who perhaps are are experiencing it in that moment. So I just never found, um, even people who maybe opposed abortion in their like personally, right? But they just didn't join the movement even in these very multiracial spaces. I'm wondering then, so how did the abortion reform or pro-abortion rights movement change in this time? Did the Roe decision make them feel like they could relax at all, or was the guard still up? I think that the grassroots energy of the abortion rights movement subsides substantially after Roe. And I think that there is some of that that was strategic, that you have more of these national organizations who really put their efforts less at organizing the grassroots and more on especially legal challenges. Because pretty quickly, I mean, within the decade, you have constant assaults legally from the anti-abortion movement. And so you have a sort of abortion rights movement really putting their efforts into sort of those legal challenges more so. But also, I think that there is a dynamism to the abortion rights movement in the last 50 years in the ways in which reproductive justice activists are really contesting 
the sole focus on abortion, especially that U.S. women of color who are really pressing white abortion rights activists to really expand their vision, not just the right not to have a child, but the right to have a child, right? They're coming out of deep histories of forced sterilization and also to raise a child in a safe and healthy environment, right? Free from police violence and free from poverty. And those were deeply felt contestations and you had people sort of ally themselves and then break apart, right? But it did lead to what we have now, which is actually an, a robust reproductive justice movement, especially if you look at those, those reproductive justice organizations who have been really developing this broad framework. You know, I think that all of them had a really hard time, and especially over the last 30 years, slowing the train of the anti-abortion movement. Roe was the thing that stood, even as it was gradually chipped away, but it was the major bulwark against what we have now. And of course, with with Roe overturned, there is not that anymore. And I think the movement is going to have to go in many different directions. It's going to, especially on the abortion side, going to have to move back and is already moving back to a sort of a grassroots oriented movement that they're going to have to get involved in people's lives in a way that they didn't have to, right? How do you get people abortions who it's now illegal in their state? You know, you have to keep doing legal challenges, but a whole host of other things too. And also they have to, I think they're going to have to work to protect democracy. And that's what reproductive justice movements have been already working on as well too. Uprisings from the people don't matter if their votes don't matter in terms of changing laws. Well, lastly, while I'm not asking you to like predict the future, as we move forward here, what do you think we can learn from this history so far? Well, I think that there's two things. I think that legal abortion occurred across the country because of a sustained movement, right, that incorporated doctors, a whole host of professionals, a robust and radical grassroots movement, and that that led to legal abortion. And that we are distant from that a little bit now, but it is there. And also I think really the anti-abortion movement shows us the power of grassroots activism as well, because they too, right, are this, they have mobilized a group of people for whom this is the only issue that matters, but also they made those people absolutely essential for one party to win elections. And that is really the sort of key over, I mean, it's 50 years. I think that the movement for a long time would have said they failed, but looking back now, we can see that even though it took 50 years, they have made had a huge victory. They've really turned the tides of history back in a way that I think most people never thought, a lot of people thought was never possible. And that is because they had this sustained grassroots movement combined with being able to compel their elected officials in a way that the party couldn't get over. Jennifer Holland is an associate professor of U.S. history at the University of Oklahoma and the author of Tiny You, a Western history of the anti-abortion movement. Jennifer, thanks so much for taking the time. Sure thing.
Thanks for listening to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks again to Jennifer Holland for joining us in this week's episode. To learn more about our guests or just the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know what you think and if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Until next week, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool side.